Alrighty, let's get started here. Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this time. Thank you that you got us here uh, safely from yesterday's trip with the youth. Uh, always a blessing to spend time with them. Um, and Lord, as we're now at this uh, 10 o'clock time, uh, please help us. Help us to understand the text, convict us, and may we be encouraged, Lord, uh, to counter a little joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Help us, Lord. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have all said something we wish we never said. Sometimes we say something that we think is right, but it couldn't be further from the truth. We can say something theologically wrong. And when we do, what's the most loving thing someone can do? Correct us. What if I told you, you know, I don't think Jesus is God. The most uh, loving thing you could do is correct my foolishness, right? I expect you to correct me for being unbiblical. And so today's message has to do with temptation. What we believe about temptation matters. Are we going to be speaking truthfully about sinful temptations, or will we say a lie? So the outline for today, we're going to recap from last week. We're going to look at verse 13, look at the Greek word of the week, question of the week, verses 14 to 15, and then some applications. All right, so let's get started here. With our recap, and you guys are going to have to help me for last week's recap. So we discussed four key words. Does anyone remember the four key words for last week? Blessed, Blessed yep. What else? Blessed, uh-huh, approved. Keep it going, two for two. <laughs> anyone, yeah, anyone. Receive, yeah. Promise. Promise. Very good, very good. So as believers, we're all blessed. This is our present reality, and we learn that all true Christians will also be approved, and they will receive the crown of life, and this has been promised to us by God. And we can have hope in our current trials because of this truth. We also looked at a couple questions. Do you guys remember the questions? Just give me the first one. What was that first big question that we had to ask? Do you? Yes, do you love God? Remember, if you read the ending of verse 12, it says, those who love him are those that receive the crown of life. And so the next question was about this blessed man. He has appeared other times in the book of James. In verses 2 to 4, he's the man that considers it all joy, lets endurance have its perfect work in him. And then in verses 5 to 8, he is the man that prays in faith for wisdom. And he is not the man that is double-minded and doubting. Then verses 9 to 11, we saw that the wise man is the lowly brother who boasts in his high position. He's not the rich man that will fade away. Our last question was about how does verse 12 connect with the rest of the book? Uh, if you remember, I had three themes. What were the three themes in the book of James that I was referring to in verse 12. Three themes. First one was? Close. Endurance. Second one was about true faith, right? Are you genuine in your faith? And the third one was about the blessing of endurance, right? You're going to be blessed if you endure. And so we had uh, many verses we could turn to, but we summed it up in those three major themes. 
Who remembers the two applications, right? So we had four keywords, four questions, and two applications. First one, does anyone remember? Yes, continue to persevere. And the second one? Cling to that promise, right? We will have eternal life. All right, so that was a good recap. Let's go into our verses for today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, verse 13. All righty, let's read it together here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So here we have uh, an important verse for all of us to really chew on. James is going to give us an imperative. Remember, do this, do this, do this. Here it's in a negative fashion. Uh, for example, last week we learned that we have to boast in our high position, right? He's telling us to do something, and it's positive. But here he's telling us in a negative way. He's saying, don't do this. Don't do this. And so we're going to look at the command here, let no one say when he is tempted. And then we're going to see two reasons why James says, don't say this. All right, he's going to give us two reasons there. So that's what we're going to look at. Let's begin here with that command. So that command is a foolish statement, right? It says there in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, here's the foolish statement, I'm being tempted by God. Why would you say that's a foolish statement, guys? Okay, yeah, perfect. The first reason. And the second reason, because he himself does not tempt anyone. So yeah, very biblical there. Um, we see throughout the letter of James that speech is a topic that we observe throughout this letter. Many people are going through trials. They're not considering it joy. Uh, and they're also talking incorrectly about their trials. And so this foolish person says, I'm being tempted by God. Right? This is an example of false speech, a lie, a blasphemy. To say we are being tempted by God? That is incorrect. And so what does the foolish person do in the midst of his trials? He plays the blame game, right? He blames God. He says, well, I wouldn't have sinned if you just stopped all these trials, God. It's the trials that God has brought in my way that are just too hard for me to handle. I can't see any other way out of them. Rather, this is the only way I can see myself out of this trial, by making a sinful choice. Right? I mean, think about it. Maybe in the workplace, things are getting tough, and you're saying, maybe I just have to lie. I just have to do something sinful to make my life better. That is what this foolish person does. And if you notice, he's blaming God indirectly. He makes an, an excuse for his sin. And so this statement, I'm being uh, tempted by God, uh, the word by there, it could also be translated, I'm being tempted from God. So the fool, this is what he's pretty much saying. Yeah, okay, fine. Maybe God is not directly tempting me, but he is still responsible. In other words, the temptation is caused by God, though not actually carried out by God, right? So he's not saying uh, straight out, oh, it, let's just blame God. Rather, he's saying God is the, God's in control. He's the creator, okay? So it's his creative action and providential direction of affairs that's behind the situation to produce the temptation, right? So this fool, he, he's, he thinks he's wise, right? He thinks he's smart because he says, well, God, if he's in control, 
Ultimately, he's sovereign, so it's his responsibility that I'm in such a situation. And so people today may not be boldly to blame God directly, but they do so indirectly. They seek to hide behind their ancestry, their slum environment, right? I, I grew up in uh, Central Islip, and, and we know in Central Islip, the crime rate could be a little high, right? The pregnancy rate, I think we were top three in pregnancy rates uh, for teens. And, and I could easily have said, you see, it was my environment. It's where I grew up. Grew up in Harlem. I don't know. You Fill in the box. You can blame my evil companions, right? You can say, well, it's my toxic friends. That's why I sin. That's who to blame. It's not me. But if it wasn't for my friends, I would, I would be a better person. Some people, what did they do? They even blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. What are some examples uh, or other examples you guys can think of of people playing the blame game? Who else do people blame or what do they blame? Oh, I'm cranky. I'm tired. What else? Oh, okay. Other authority. Good. Family. It was my family. Yeah. We can think of many things. For me, it's yeah, like when I just woke up. I just woke up. I'm tired. I need my coffee. That's why I'm mad at you. But no, like we, we can't be doing that, right? There are all ways of escaping responsibility for our actions. So think about the argument a little bit. Let's go deeper into the argument. You know, God put me on this earth with all these trials. Sure, he doesn't tempt me, but if he didn't put me on this earth, I wouldn't be sinning. Right? He's, he created me. Maybe they say, I was born this way. Is it really my fault or God's? So we observe what the foolish person does here. They play the blame game. Sinful temptation, he thinks, it can't be my fault. So what does he do? He looks outside himself and says, well, it must be someone else's fault. He's ultimately implying it's the creator's fault. And we see this all the, all the time. People unwilling to own up to their sin. They don't ask for forgiveness, and they look for someone to blame. This is what Adam and Eve did, right, in the garden. They blamed God indirectly. What did Adam say? Does anyone remember? The woman you gave me, right? He says, the woman you gave me. You know, that's why I fell. What about Eve? Who does Eve blame? It was the serpent's fault. But here's the thing. The serpent was created by God. And so was Eve out of the rib. So what, what are they doing? They're blaming God indirectly. And we know that the devil does tempt, but he's not the source of temptation, right? James could have easily said, yeah, guys, it's the devil. He's the one that's causing us to sin. He doesn't do that. He gives us the source of temptation in a little bit. So ask yourself, have you been blaming God indirectly in your trials? Um, let's be honest. <laughs> We're quick to play the blame game. Uh, whenever I lose something, I actually lost my wallet, um, I think, on Friday. No, no, no. Thursday night, because we had a big trip on Friday, and I'm like, I can't go on the trip if I can't find my wallet. So I was ready to go to Queens, right? We went to a Peruvian spot with my wife for her celebration of her birthday, and maybe I lost it in Queens, and I was like ready to go back, look for my wallet, and I said, all right, I have to blame someone. It has to be either my spouse or my kids that took my wallet. So I started telling Veronica, I, you know, I think it was maybe Sophia. It could have been Sebastian. It could have even been Santiago. You don't know. <laughs> And I'm ready to blame. It's, 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 you know, the pride in me. 
Because there's no way I lost it, right? But beloved, that is arrogance. That is uh, being prideful. When we don't confess our sins and when we think it's not my fault. And yes, we eventually found the wall. So when subjected to hard trials, we can be prone to think unfairly about God. We are inclined to blame God for our failure. And so James, what does he do here? He rejects the claim that God was tempting them. And he corrects and rebukes this foolish person by explaining in two ways, how is God not the source of temptation? Well, number one, here's the first one. It's in verse 13. God is inexperienced with evil. So the text says God cannot be tempted by evil or of evil things, right? So God doesn't play with sin. Sin is disgusting to him. It is a serious thing in his eyes. He even had to send his one and only son to die for our sins. And so why would he ever be involved in sinful temptation? Clearly, the foolish person has forgotten a basic truth in Scripture. God is perfect. He is sinless. He is not appealed to do evil. Evil is not even attractive to him. Why? Because he is the light, the word tells us. There is no darkness in him, 1 John 1, 5. God is good. There isn't even one drop of evil in him. And so the implication here is the only way for God to be involved in sinful temptation is if he was able to be tempted himself. For example, when we tempt someone, it's natural for us because we're sinful, right? God is not able to tempt because he cannot sin. He's impeccable. He has no sinful desires. God's nature is holy, and that should cause us to rejoice, right? If God could sin or tempt us, he wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to fully trust him, right? But he is faithful. He is true. Evil cannot touch him. He is untemptable or incapable of being tempted. So this brings us to the Greek word of the week. And if you saw there, I, I mentioned a couple things that God is good. That's talking about his character. Uh, that's the first uh, reason about why God is not the source of temptation. And now uh, let's look at the Greek word before we go to our second reason. All right, so parazo, this word comes up, let's see, look at verse 13. How much times does it come up? This is a trick question because uh, translations, you know, this and that. But the word parazo, do you see it? All right, so technically it's three, but, yeah, it's in, used in four different ways. So it matters, right, to James to say this three times. This word uh, is very important, right? It's, it's part of the major theme in the book of James. Uh, and when we see temptation come our way, do we give in to it, or do we say no to the flesh? So why don't you guys give me a couple examples of some temptations. What are some temptations we face daily? Sinful temptations. Yeah. Anger. Yes, that's a big one for us men and ladies. Impatience. Yeah. That's a good one. Complaining. Yeah. Envy, lying, ooh, yes, that one is a big one. Yeah, maybe you have a really good career and you can be very prideful about it, you know. Maybe uh, lust and someone mentioned anger, right. So we can reason that, yes, there's a certainty of trials, which means there's going to be also a certainty of temptations. It's so easy to lose our cool when things get tough. We can look for a way out of a trial, or we can endure it patiently. 
And so when we're tempted to sin and lose our patience, we need to remember we're called to endure. And so keep this word temptation in the back of your mind throughout the book of James. There's going to be many um, occasions when the audience is going to be tempted to disobey God, and James is going to have to correct their foolish thinking. All right, so let's jump to our second reason of why the statement is so foolish and why God is not the source of temptation. Uh, Very simply, if you look at verse 13, what does it say at the end? He himself does not tempt anyone. So he gives us another basic truth in Scripture. God does not tempt anyone. He never does, and he never will. It's like the first reason, because it involves an impossibility. right? God can't be tempted, and he can't tempt anyone. So there's something God cannot do. What is it that God cannot do, guys? God cannot sin, right? To tempt us would mean God is a sinner. And this is not to say that God doesn't test his people. We see that throughout scripture. We'll talk about it a little bit later. James is not denying that, yes, you know, God subjects men to testing, but he does deny the claim that God tests men with an evil intent to lead them into sin. And so testing is necessary. We learned um, in our group study on Wednesday and also Uh, when we were going through verses 2 to 4 and 12, uh, that, yeah, testing trials are good to develop that desired moral maturity and strength in God's people. But that doesn't mean God solicits men to evil. And so what James is arguing is that God never sinfully schemes for a person to fall into sin. He doesn't just sit back and say, okay, how can I make this person sin today? Let me put a little trial there. And I know he's going to sin, and I'm going to make him sin. No, no, no. God is fair. Yes, he is sovereign over all things, but that doesn't mean there's no human responsibility. And so we'll discuss that in a little bit. But let's look at our question of the week. I think this is very important because you read some commentaries, you read some scholars, and obviously there's some that aren't good. And one that I read said, well, James contradicts Genesis 22. So go to Genesis 22, verse 1. I'll say, what? What are you talking about there? Genesis 22, verse 1, uh, it's a similar word. And some may say, well, doesn't God contradict himself here? It says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he said, here I am. And so they're saying, well, you see, God does tempt. But the text says God tested Abraham. So how do we resolve the two? Um, like I said before, there is a difference between testing and tempting, right? Tempting someone involves sinfully wanting the other party to fall. God doesn't do that to anyone. Yes, he does test our faith to reveal if we're genuine or not, but that doesn't mean he is responsible for how we respond to a trial. I think about the Israelites in the wilderness, right? They were ready to kill Moses because they were in a trial they felt they couldn't bear. Rather than asking for water from God uh, by faith, saying, we know you can provide God, please. Instead, what did they do? They grumbled, right? And they were ready to replace Moses. And so one can argue that God tempted them, but that's not true. He tested them. There's a huge difference. For example, if I provoke my uh, child to anger, I'm tempting them. When I'm in a bad mood, I am tempted to take it out of my kids and annoy them and cause them to stumble, right? Throw a pillow at them. But God doesn't do that with his children. He's patient. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's ready to train his kids in faithfulness. 
And so when he gives us a trial, it's not to make us stumble. It's to show us how we need to depend on him. Again, someone may argue, well, Kevin, it's God's fault for giving me a trial in the first place. That's why I sinned. But that, again, is taking the responsibility away from your uh, actions. That's playing the blame game when we should be praying for God's wisdom. And so we really have no reason to blame God for our trials. If anything, we should thank him for teaching us how to depend on him. So uh, let's look at some quick applications from this verse, and then we'll jump into our next verses. So the first one I have, uh, very simply, uh, verse 13, uh, stop playing the blame game. I know it's a fun game at times. We can't help ourselves. We say, well, it wasn't my fault. It was, it was your fault. Maybe you point fingers. I don't know. Have you been playing the blame game? Have you been blaming God for your trials indirectly? How do you know? Well, maybe you get angry when you're in trials. Maybe you get annoyed when you're in trials or you accept them in bitterness. We have to consider it all joy when we encounter trials. And so we need to stop and think, am I playing the blame game right now? We need to stop it. Second thing here, God's goodness should cause us to befriend God and magnify him, right? We learned about how there's no drop of evil in him. And so uh, think about it. God doesn't flirt with sin. He hates sin. And so we can run to him and rejoice that our God will never tempt us. He is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And so far we learned that he is not the source of temptation. But what's the source of temptation? All right, so James rebuked them. Now he's going to correct them. Look at here in James chapter 1, verse 14. Let's read it. James 1, 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Verse 15 also here. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so we see here, um, we're told the source of temptation. James gives us three steps of how sinful temptation progresses in the life of a sinner. So we also saw a bunch of sequences uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we know there's a beginning and there's the end, and so James is going to give us another sequence to meditate on. We observe here that he's also going to give us an illustration of this progression or this course of sinful temptation. And so we have this picture uh, that's similar in verses 2 to 4 with the man who endures, right? Uh, there's this development going on to maturity. Here, it's a, it's a contrast. We're going to see the negative example of a man who doesn't endure, right? This man is a fool. We're going to see that development in his life. This is also a direct contrast to last week in verse 12, right? We saw the blessed man who will eventually be approved and then receive the crown of life. Here, we're going to see this progression doesn't lead to life, leads to death. So let's look at the first step here. Desire. I got that picture up there. You're the problem. No, no, no. Scratch it up. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. All right. So our sinful lust, our desire is the first step of sinful temptation. So who's the source of temptation? Me. You. We're the source. Humans have this sinful desire. Notice how this man is tempted. It's not by God. This man is tempted. Look at the uh, end of verse 14. When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so temptation in us has two ways of behaving, right? These two words, they're cinnamon words, right? Very similar. And they have uh, very similar implications. So 
The first one, to be carried away, right? What does that picture? It pictures us being dragged by the temptation to our demise. It's like we can't say no. Picture a mosquito and a bright light. It just, boom, it gets zapped, right? And beloved, you've experienced this before. You have this inner craving to do wrong. And when you do it, you might think, well, man, it just happened so automatically. Almost like you didn't stop and think about it. And so that's what happens. It's like this quick uh, you just do it, temptation, right? The second word is enticed. And this word, it pictures an adulteress. Uh, it's a slower, a more patient temptation, right? You chew on it, you think about it, oh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I think we should go to Proverbs to get a better understanding of this. Look at Proverbs 7. As I was preparing for this, I was like, whoa, Proverbs 7. Get this illustration picture, and it's scary. So look at we're going to look at the ending of verse seven. Go to verses twenty-three. If you got it, say amen. All right. So I won't hit all the verses, but I'll hit most of them. So look at the end of verse seven. There's this young man lacking sense. Right? You could say he's a fool. And what does he do? Verse 8, he's passing through the street near her corner, right? This is going to be about the adulterous woman. And so he knows where he shouldn't go. And he knows she's around there, and he's just walking, passing through. He takes the way to her house. He probably could have took a different way, but he goes to closer to her house. And look at the time here, verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness, right? Spending time at night always uh, isn't a good thing. It leads to something bad usually. Verse 10, Behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot. So this temptation, you can just think of it, it's, it's a beautiful temptation, right, from the eyes, right? Very pleasing to the eyes. Verse 11, talking about her, she is bolsterous, rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. All right, this is just a, a foreshadowing of how bad it's going to be. Don't do it. Verse 12, she is now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. Temptation is right at the door. And what happens? She seizes him, kisses him for brazen face. She says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I've paid my vows, right? Probably religious. Verse 15. There are, therefore, I have come to meet you to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you, right? Temptation makes you feel good. Oh, this is like, I'm going to be appreciated. Okay. Verse 15. Uh, 16, I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh so that it smells good, right? All the senses. It's not just one sense of vision. It's all your senses. The temptation is just enticing you. Look at uh, verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him, right? There's our word. With her flattering lips, she seduces him, right? He hears everything he wants to hear in this temptation. And what happens? What's the result of this person's temptation? Verse 22. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Verse 23. Look at the end here. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. This temptation was not worth it. This temptation led to his death. You can go back to the book of James. And so... This foolish man, he is dragged or drawn away by this harlot. You can picture it also like a fish going for that juicy worm bait. 
it's like you can't resist and you see the attractiveness of the object but you don't see the hook it's like maybe when you get hungry and you're like well automatically you go to the fridge this simple temptation it seems overpowering like there's no hope and for those that know, don't know Christ they can't stop themselves this progression begins when lust has conceived in their heart it's more than a preference this is a desire it's a i must have this now no matter what i have to do i need this specific sin in my life they may even sacrifice for it later if you go to james 4 verse 1 he tells us the source of quarrels and conflicts what does he say your pleasures that wage war in your members and so simple temptation begins in our hearts, right? It's our desire. And once you make that first step in simple temptation, there's no going back. It's going to lead you to the next step. So I want you to notice this progression in this following illustration, right? The illustration of simple temptation. James uses this metaphor. He begins with conception, then he goes to childbirth, and it ends with adulthood. You can think of it this way. Desire is the grandmother. Sin is the mother. And death is the daughter, right? So we can look at it also in the via of uh, human development, right? What do we all start off as? A small fertilized egg, all right? And then we go to the embryo, right? Maturing in that womb for nine months, eventually becoming an adult. It's the process of life, right? We've all been through it. And so James uses this illustration to picture us the process or course of sinful temptation, First, we have this sinful desire that gives birth to sin. And then what happens with sin? It matures to adulthood, which is death. So why don't we consider uh, the second step? So we spoke about desire. Now let's talk about sin. All right. Look at verse 15. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. So that's our next step. When we really want something or we desire it so much that we're prepared to disobey our king for it. It's an idol. Whatever it is, we sin to get what we want. So why don't you guys uh, give me some examples. Or I, I know I mentioned temptation before, but what is sin? What would, what would the word say? What is sin? Define it. Missing the target. Okay. Anyone else? Falling short of the glory of God. Breaking God's law. All right. And there's so many different examples of missing the target or, or sinning. All right. Adultery. You could just list the Ten Commandments. Right. Murder. But what does Jesus say? Even looking with lust is committing adultery in your heart. Even calling your brother a fool or getting angry is uh, murder in the heart. So this is what sin is. And there's no reason to rejoice at the birth of sin. It should cause us to be remorseful. Sin as a baby is a dangerous thing. It can destroy families. It's the beginning of all despair. That sin will eventually grow up to kill us. And so, uh, we know that God, we mentioned earlier, uh, he hates sin. He doesn't sin. He can't even sin. Um, it goes against his nature, right? Because he is holy. So when we sin, we're breaking his law. And unbelievers, they stand condemned because of their sin. They are without hope if they continue in their rebellion. And we know what happens when those that don't repent of their sins, right? The next uh, part of the verse here says, and when sin is accomplished, when you're not repenting, 
um, sin is going to grow. It's going to keep growing. It's no longer a baby, right? You can say that when sin is completed, it has grown up and it has become this unrepentive sin. It's a fixed habit determining this character of this person. And, and this unrepentive sin is no joke before a holy God. He is going to punish that sinner in a just manner. And that's where our third step gets to, death. And so mature sin brings forth death. I want you to see the irony in this. This is probably my favorite part uh, of this verse. James is saying that sin is giving birth to something. You're going to think, okay, well, it's a living object. No, it's death. That is what we deserve for our sin. Praise the Lord for those who cry out to Jesus and place their faith in him. His righteousness is ours. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. But for those that haven't, they are going to perish in their sins. What does Romans 6.23 tells us? What's the wages of sin? Yes, wages of sin is death. And so Adam, he knew this before he sinned, right? God said you will surely die if you disobey. Uh, We can argue, right? He didn't uh, physically die that day, but we can argue he spiritually died. And so um, because of sin, it led eventually, right, 900-something years to his death physically. But on that day, there was that... Uh, brokenness of fellowship with God. And so this topic of death, uh, I think we need to unpack it a little bit more. And James, this is how he ends his letter, right? It's uh, rather abruptly how he ends. But he says about the person in sin, right? There's this restoration of the brother. If you look at verse uh, chapter 5, verse 20. And what does he say? His soul will be saved from death. And so let's explore this spiritual death a little bit more. Look at Uh, the book of Romans. This is a crucial passage for all of us. Uh, In the book of Romans, right after Acts, look at chapter 5, verse 12. Talking about spiritual death here. How did it all happen? And and I like this because it's going to tie into what we learned our uh, our first part of this. So look at 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all man because all sin. So we have here uh, an important reason. Why do people die? What's, what's the reason? Why do they die? What does the verse tell us? Because of sin. And so Romans 5, 15, so we're going to just see a bunch of reasons here so look at verse 15 it says for by the transgression of the one the many died so what do we see here that sin has major consequences it led to the death of humanity and we're all born sinners who will eventually die because of sin now look at verse 16 it says for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression right one sin one disobedience against god what does it result in condemnation and so just one sin is bad enough to send us to hell think about that the next time you disobey god romans 5 19 it says for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so someone at this point would be like wait a minute wait a minute kevin that's not fair you see it's adam's fault that i sin again they're playing the blame game right they're trying to use this verse out of context Um, They're forgetting their personal responsibility for their own actions. 
So our responsibility is to believe in God, not to blame him. Now, before we move on to our applications, I want us to consider here the comparison between life and death. All right, very important for us to think about, meditate on. So I brought this up a lot of times. We see there's a contrast of those who perish and those who persevere. Believers, they mature to eternal life, and they are the ones that are given the crown of life. They endure to the end. Unbelievers, on the other hand, right, they mature to what? Death. They're the ones that are going to perish. And so what should that make us think? What should our attitude be? Uh, knowing that we're going to persevere to the end and knowing that the unbelievers are going to perish. What, what does that make you think of, guys? What should our attitude be towards unbelievers? Compassion, good. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. So we know that, man, they're on their way to hell. And so rather than saying, ha, I'm not going to hell, the heathens are, but not me, we should be like, whoa, why me? I'm not worthy. We've been given that which we don't deserve. We're just like everyone else, right? We're in the same boat. We've all sinned against God. We should be thankful and wanting to see many of our unsaved family members or coworkers come to faith and be saved from the coming wrath. Right? We should be people that rejoice and look out for ways to reach others. We know there are only two types of people, right? Those that mature to life, verse 4, and then those that mature to death, verse 15. Um, so let's look at our applications here from these verses. First one, pretty similar to the last one in verse 13. It says, uh, take responsibility for your decisions. Right, Like our first verse, you can... Stop playing the blame game, all right? You stop playing it, but then you also got to own up to your actions. You confess your sins. You tell God that I'm the source of temptation. I'm the problem. I need help. I need grace. And so humble yourself or the Lord will humble you. Second one, human depravity should cause us to beg God for mercy. Human depravity should cause us to beg God for mercy. I get it. We're sinners. We still sin. But as believers, saints, we need to remember we have the Spirit of God in us. So we shouldn't give up in this race, but rather desire to see spiritual growth. And this begins with reading the Word daily. And, and for those that aren't believers, they should see their sin for the first time in light of God's truth. They have offended a holy and just God, and they need forgiveness, and they should cry out in repentance and ask the Lord to save them. So in conclusion, we correct the brother in Christ, right? That's verse 13. And then we should also care for them by explaining to them the truth, right? That's what James did. He rebuked and he showed him the truth. We need to humble ourselves to see what the true source of sinful temptation is. It's not Jesus. It's us. We also have to get off this course of sin. Right? Maybe you're on step one right now and you're, you're thinking about the sin that you want to commit. You've got to get off that course. Right? Don't live a life of sin. Live a life for Christ. He has conquered death and we can trust in him. So don't go from your desire to great depravity to death, but rather think about what the blessed man did. He, he, went, he went from repentance of his lust to the righteousness of Christ and then 
it led to the reward of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time in the book of James, uh, always convicting. Um, Lord, we know we deal with this. We uh, often go to step one and then to step two. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to see how you hate sin and how you call us to love you. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for living a perfect life on earth, never getting to step one. Lord, you are so good. Help us to uh, beg for mercy. Help us to depend on you, uh, knowing that you're good. And Lord, we love you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.